Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on July 14, 2015 at WOMAR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is Last Call. Dear friend of ours now. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and wonderful painter, Larry Horowitz. Come on. My story's called Last Chance. Years ago, I had a little sailboat in a beautiful little harbor on Cape Cod, not mentioning the place. Um, I had it for many years, and I dealt with these guys that would take me out to my boat and bring me back, and they took care of my boat. And they had a nickname for me, and my nickname was, what was my nickname? Oh, chicken shit. <laughs> now, I've so, I sort of like chicken shit after a while, but the thing is, if my wife and I went out, they never would call me chicken shit. But if I was out with my children, or I brought guests on the boat, God forbid, they proceeded to mention chicken shit at least three or four times on the launch out. And then when I got back, they'd say, so, how was your sale, chicken shit? <laughs> and... I guess I was a little bit of a chicken, not growing up on sailboats and being a fisherman or whatever. Uh, so I, you know, I didn't have a motor and I didn't go out all the time. I only went out when the weather was good and the winds were perfect and I knew I could do everything I needed to do. And my wife had also told me that if I raised my voice once, she would not come out for the whole year. So I had to make perfectly clear that it was a, a good day for sailing. So last chance. So picture this, the boat's expensive to keep up and every time you go out, it, you know, it's part of you know, what it cost. And it's my last day on Cape Cod. I've been here for three months, my kids have to get back to school and I just had to go out sailing. So of course, this particular day, no one wanted to go with me. And I went down to the harbor and I looked in the little building and they have a window meter there. And I normally wouldn't go out if it was above 15 knots. If they were white caps, that was it. I wouldn't go out. Too dangerous. <laughs> so this particular day, it was blowing 27 knots in the inner harbor. And it was going up to 29, 32. And I looked at the guy that was going to take me out. And I said, well, what do you think? It's my last day. He said, oh, this is your last chance. This is your last call. You have to go out today. I said, but... It's too windy, it's too windy. He says, oh, no, it's not. He said, this is, I said, but I don't have a reef to reef my sail. He says, don't worry about it. This is what you do. He said, you go out onto the jib. I said, the jib, are you crazy? The boat's not going to be balanced or anything. I'm in the back, the jib's in the front. It's not going to be right. He says, don't worry about it. We do it all the time. He said, if you're nervous, he said, just sail the boat on the mooring. I'll take you out there, and I'll leave you there. And you know, you just practice you know, sailing on the mooring. And when you feel good, you untie the mooring, and you just go. Everything will be fine. And you know, I'm vacillating. And then another guy comes up and starts going, bah, 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 chicken chip, chicken chip. And at that point, I realized I was going. I had no choice. You know, 
I had to I had to bury this chicken shit thing once and for all. I had to get rid of it. It was it was driving me crazy. So this is before cell phones. So now with cell phones, if you're at your mooring and you want to be picked up, you can call them on the line and they come and get you. But at that point, you weren't allowed to use a horn, you weren't allowed to yell. What you had to do is you would have to sail by this little house and they would wave to you and that would mean that they would get you when they felt like it. <laughs> Which normally meant you sat in the hot sun for at least a half an hour until you just wanted to plot. So, I realized that once they left me, I was going to have to sail because I'd have to wave to them no matter what. So I put up the jib and I sail on the mooring. And at this point, I'm really, really nervous. I'm thinking, oh my God, it's really, really, really windy. But what was I to do? I had to wave to them. So I undid my mooring and I sail out and I'm sailing up to the jetty. And of course, in the inner harbor, 27 knots, it's protected. Once you get outside the outer harbor, that's where the real wind is. So I slowly get to the edge of the jetty. And when I get to the edge of the jetty and I go beyond, the boat knocks down and starts filling with water. So I let my single little sail go. And I notice that my feet are sloshing around in the water. And there at my feet is a little fish. And I'm saying to myself, oh, hmm, dinner. And I say, well, maybe that was just a gust. Maybe everything's OK. Well, I'll pull the jib in, and I'll try it again. So I pull the jib in, and of course, the boat knocks down again and fills up with even more water. And at that point, I realize, hmm, maybe they're playing a joke on me or some, some sort of thing, you know, how to kill a washer. Well, yeah, I don't know. So I tack the boat around, and I head back to give them the wave. And the water's sloshing in the boat, and you know everything's just floating around, and I'm just, I'm just lost it by now. I'm, I'm totally off, off balance and not myself anymore. And I give them the wave, realizing that, okay, if I'm not going to be chicken shit anymore, I can't act nervous. I can't say, why'd you do that to me? I'm just going to give him the wave and sail up to my mooring, and everything's going to be fine. They're going to come pick me up. I'm going to have my martini later, and everything's going to be wonderful. It's just going to be a story I'm going to tell, the fish in the boat. So I, I gave them my wave, and shockingly, they actually were there, and they waved back. But at that point, I noticed that there were a bunch of old men just standing there. And they've been pointing at me the whole time. And they're laughing, and they just think this is the funniest thing. And I'm thinking, oh my god, every retired fisherman's out on the dock laughing at me. So I sail back to my mooring, and being one person, in order to get your boat into the mooring, you have to go, to, you have to go, you have to face your boat into the wind, and slow your boat down to almost a stop. And with one hand, you pick up the mooring, with the other hand, you steer, and with the third hand, which I guess I didn't have, you're supposed to let the jib down so the boat will stop moving. So I try to go, to go into the harbor and do that. And lo and behold, the boat is just moving too fast. And I just can't pick up my mooring. But I realize, okay, gotta bury chicken shit. I gotta do this, I just gotta do this. Then I got no choice. So I go around again, and of course, I can't pick up my mooring the second time either. And at that point, a huge gust comes into the inner harbor, and the boat almost knocks down right at my mooring. 
And everybody's watching and everybody's laughing. They think it's just the funniest thing. And I'm just in such a state of complete humiliation. <laughs> so I decide that this is it. I don't care what happens. I don't care if the boat breaks in two. I don't care if I break my leg. I am picking up that mooring no matter what. So I go around one last time and I realize, okay, I got three hands. I got a foot. I'm going to steer the boat with my foot. I'm going to pick up the mooring with one hand, and I'm going to let the jib down with the other. So I go to the mooring, and I quickly grab the mooring, and as I'm grabbing the mooring, I bang my shin, and guess what? It hurt all winter long. <laughs> but I was able to pick up the mooring. I was able to take down the sail, and at that point, shockingly, without waiting a half an hour, the launch pulls up. And I get into the launch, and I don't say anything to the guy, the one that called me chicken shit, by the way, 37,000 times. And he says to me, you know, we had a 37-nut gust as you were picking up your mooring. We got worried about you. <laughs> so he takes, he takes me in, and the moral of the story is, when everybody, anybody says, last call, don't do it. <laughs> All right, let's welcome our first storyteller to the stage, Adam Rubin. <laughs> Hi. So I've been doing stand-up comedy for about 15 years now, and I started doing it in a really unfairly easy way. I was in college, on campus, and all my jokes were about the campus, and all my audience members were half my friends, so I just had to get up there and be like, what's the deal with the lower quad? And we're like, yay! So at some point, I realized that if I was ever gonna do this in the real world, I would have to go and do stand-up comedy at an actual comedy club, some place that would be full of people I didn't know. As it turned out, I would be half right. There would be lots of people I didn't know, it would not be anywhere near full. But, getting ahead of myself. So. Um, I was living with my parents for the summer between sophomore and junior year, and I did what you do in 1999 when you want to find something. I did a Yahoo local search. Remember that? So I typed in the word comedy in my parents' zip code in Delaware, and I listed the results in order of proximity, went down the list calling each place, and I knew the three words I was supposed to ask them. I said, do you have open mic nights? Most places said no, one place said yes, every Thursday night is open mic. So I went there, and that is how I found myself walking into the Race Car Cafe and Comedy Club in Malaga, New Jersey. It's a redneck bar for people who like watching stock car racing. There are checkered flags all over the walls and big single and double digit numbers in italicized impact font. I mean, I, I can't even describe to you how much I don't belong in this place. I am a 19-year-old nerdy college kid. I'm a science major. I don't think I had even before that night been in a bar let alone a redneck bar in random Malaga, New Jersey. So I go over to the, the bar and I sit down, I order chicken fingers or something, and the waitress uh, is behind the bar, I ask her, so this is the, the open mic night? She says, oh yep, we got this band, blues jazz band, they're gonna be playing when the band's on break, it's open mic. And she said, what is it you do? I said, stand up comedy? She goes, oh, that could work. See, I didn't realize, but they called it the Race Car Cafe and Comedy Club because once a month they had a comedy show. 
this was not that night. <laughs> what they meant by open mic night was that if you have a guitar, you can get up and play a couple songs while the band's on break. So I didn't know any of that. I'm just sitting there at the bar, eating my chicken fingers. We got my printed out list of jokes. I'm copying the keywords of my jokes onto my hand. Jokes that killed on campus, jokes about the lower quad. <laughs> Why is it so much lower than the upper quad? So I, um, I wait till the band goes on break. The waitress takes this little microphone behind the bar. She gives me the worst introduction that I have ever had in my entire 15 years since then. Here's what she says. She says, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the comedy stylings of Adam from Delaware. So I get up there and I look out across this sea of six people who are eating their dinners. And, and here's how little I know at this point. I say, all right, six people in a redneck bar on a Thursday night in central New Jersey. I know what these people want to hear, math puns. So, so here is the joke that I actually opened with. I said, um, so you guys hear that there's alcohol in mouthwash? Did you know that? Well, I wanted to know how much alcohol was in my mouthwash. So I looked at the label, but it didn't say. I guess the proof was beyond the text of this scope. <laughs> and nothing. And I want to describe for you the quality of this nothing, because it, it wasn't nothing like, eh, half clap. No, it was nothing like I wasn't even there. <laughs> They're just sitting and eating their dinner. And I understand it's because they weren't there to see a show. They're there to just have dinner and maybe have a band playing in the background. So now, not only am I not entertaining them, I'm actively slightly bothering them. <laughs> and one thought hits me very strongly. Ooh, I still have nine and a half minutes left. <laughs> it turns out to be the longest 10 minutes of my life. When I finally get back to the bar afterwards, the waitress hands me these two little slips of paper. She says, you know, next month we're having an actual comedy show. Here are two free tickets. You should come watch. So that's what I did. I accomplished that night. I have finally proven to the world that I am qualified to watch comedy. It was very nice of her to give me those tickets, but I, I knew when I left the door that I was never coming back to Malaga, New Jersey again. It was a very long, kind of sad car ride on the way home. But at one point I thought, you know, there are two ways you could look at this. Both ways start with, that was terrible. You could either say, that was terrible, and I never want to feel that way again. Or you could say, that was terrible, and now I know where the bottom is. Right? If I stick with this, I can at least be assured that however long I do stand-up comedy, I will never have a show as bad as the one at the Race Car Cafe and Comedy Club in Malaga, New Jersey. And now, 15 years later, at least I have a story to tell about it. Thanks. Chris Hamilton. Hello, everybody. My first time ever telling a story in front of a crowd here. Um, when I was 32 years old, I had possibly the best job in the world. And the story isn't about me, I promise you. Um, I was a professor on a sailboat in the Caribbean. So I was on a 130-foot wooden sailboat, and we had 20 college students and six sailors and a cook and two professors, and we sailed around to all the islands, and I taught them about volcanoes and coral reefs and mangroves and did all these amazing things. But the most amazing things that we did, even as a science professor, were going to countries like 
Haiti and Cuba. Okay, so imagine this. Imagine we're in the Virgin Islands and 20 college students get down on the boat. They're, they've never sailed before. Most of them have never been out of the country. They're pale. They have fresh passports with no stamps in them. They're all starting to get to know each other a little bit. And we give them an orientation of the boat. We set sail around the Virgin Islands. We spend a couple nights on board. We do some snorkeling. We have some classes. We go to Anagata. We go down to Dominica. And by now, the students are getting a little bit saltier. They're getting a little more tanned. They're starting to fool around with each other a little bit, and all those social dynamics start happening on a boat as you expect they would with a group of 20-year-olds on a wooden sailboat in the Caribbean, right? Um, and they're adults. They're, I mean, they're 20 years old, so they're not kids. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not chaperoning them when I go out. So they're allowed to go to bars. They're allowed to do things like that where the drinking age is 18. So it's a lot of fun for them. And my job is to make sure they, <clears throat> they when the university gave me this job, it was Southampton College of Long Island University. I had this big plan of all these things I was going to do, and I was going to improve the educational merit of the program, and I was going to have all these research projects, and the dean said, Chris, just bring them back alive. <laughs> really, that's your job. Show them a good time, bring them back alive. That's all you got to do. And I was like, well, I can do that. So anyways, I, my, my goal was to teach them as much as I could, and I did. I did a good job of that. But of course, they go out, and they do things, and they get a little crazy, and they drink, and they hook up with each other, and they meet people when they go ashore, and this and that. And we finally get to Cuba, and we went to this port in Cuba called Baracoa. It's on the very northeastern tip of Cuba. It's this bay that is very infrequently visited. It's not on the tourist uh, route at all. There's only one road getting in there, one road getting out from like Santiago in the southern part. Um, it's so remote that they didn't actually have a road to it until after the revolution. So there, there aren't all the old American cars there like you'd expect there would be. There are a bunch of cars from like the 80s and the 90s and stuff like that, that that were brought in. So it's a really unique region in Cuba that doesn't get a lot of visitors. Cuba does have a lot of tourists, just not a lot of American tourists. So we come sailing in in this 130-foot wooden boat with a 20-foot American flag flying off the back. And, you know, hundreds of kids kept running out to the point. They're all jumping up and down. They're like, look at the Americans. They had no idea who we were. We didn't know who they were. It was, it was my, I think, my second time in Cuba at that point. But you know it's going to be great. You know it's going to be awesome. So we, we, we drop the anchor. We tie up at a dock. We all go ashore. Um, the students start to meet all these other kids that are there. And um, as you would expect, you know, there's energy going on. The, all, the, all the American boys meet a bunch of Cuban girls, and all the American girls meet a bunch of Cuban boys. And there's this one girl on the boat who is this quiet, shy, blonde, no way to put it, obese girl who is just that, that shy, really, really, really heavy girl the whole trip and didn't say much to anybody, wasn't part of any sort of social clique or anything, always kind of the outcast, kind of got left out when other kids went off and did this and that. And... After we had been ashore about a half an hour, it became clear to everybody on the boat that this girl was getting 10 times more guys than all the other girls on the boat. The Cubans like large women, and this girl was in heaven. <laughs> heaven! The first time in her life, all the skinny girls are like, what the hell? What's going on? You know? And this girl is just like, she's like 10 guys around her, like giving her waters and like helping her up steps and inviting her to the family home for dinner and all this kind of stuff. And, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience to see this transformation that she was going through and just to see her like brighten up and her just become alive. And all the students made friends there. We all, I, we got, we went back to the boat for dinner and we had a little powwow and it's like, how's it going? You guys all making friends with this and that. And all the students are like, yeah, our friends want us to, you know, come meet their families and spend the night in the house. And it turns out every single one of our students had an invite to go spend the night in a family's home. And I was like, great, let's do it. Why not? You know, it's, Sounds like an awesome opportunity. So they all went and did that, and that was wonderful. And we got back together the next day, and we did a hike, and we studied some mangroves, and we did the sciencey stuff, and a couple field trippy things, and museums, and that sort of thing. And then the next night was kind of a night off for the students to go out and they to go out and you know go dancing. There were a couple of dance places to dance and stuff like that. And um, 
even when the boat is tied up at a dock, students are responsible for standing watch, right? So there's a watch that comes on at 12 o'clock and there'll be three students who just have to basically stay awake and make sure no one else comes on the boat and you know, hit, the, hit the dock lines with a machete to keep the rats off and stuff like that and you know, make sure the boat's not sinking or drifting off or whatever. But someone always has to be awake and responsible for the, for the boat. There was a watch that came on at four o'clock and um, this girl had been missing and no one had seen her. Like everyone, had, everyone decided they were all going to come back on the boat that night. They weren't all going to stay ashore. But they were out together dancing this and that. And this girl was with you know, these guys. And, and um, she sort of went missing. And no one knew where she was. And I was, I was staying ashore. I was in a hotel in this really dingy, amazingly old, decrepit wooden hotel where you could see through the floors down to the lobby. And it's just wonderful. It's so charming. I love it, that kind of thing. Um, but there was nobody there at, at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when one of the crew members of the boat climbed up the, the rain spout to climb into my balcony to wake me up to let me know that there was an emergency and this girl was missing. That w crew member who climbed up into my room ended up becoming my wife a couple years later, by the way. Separate story. We had a little shipboard romance that just went, went, went crazy. But um, she's like, you got to get down here. Like, they're, they're calling the police. Like, all these things are happening. I was like, okay, okay. I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Get down to the boat. Every student is up. The captain's up, pacing up and down. The, they have a search committee went this way the last time they saw her. Another search committee went that way the last time they saw her. There's a policeman down there who's taking notes, and he's like, you don't have to worry about anything. I'm like, well, we're worried. They can't find the girl. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? So we're sitting around the boat. I'm sitting there. I'm trying to think of what to do. I didn't think it was going to be that. Is that the bell? Okay. I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. Turns out she shows up at five minutes of four, walking down the dock with a guy in her hand, just made it just in time for her watch. And the next day, we were sailing away, and I was sitting down next to her. She's like, Chris, I'm really sorry about all the, 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 the rockamaroo and all the stuff, and you getting up and the police and everything like that. She says, but I had my first kiss there. And I didn't want to leave Cuba. I almost stayed. Thank you. Um, so for me, I was having a tricky time with the theme, and I thought, last call, bar, last chance, okay. And I thought, um, there was this time we were walking down Commercial Street, Vanessa and myself. We've been best buddies for 19 years, and we had a theater company, and we've done a lot of stuff together. And we're walking down Commercial Street, and we said to ourselves, or I said, this is the summer. This is the summer we're going to meet some good guys. <laughs> this is the summer we're going to get boyfriends. Oh, my God. So this is it. It's the start of the summer. And there's like this little monopoly of the OC and the Governor Bradford, you know, for those hetero folks, whatever. And we're like, and I don't like karaoke, but um, we're like, let's go in and do some karaoke. That was my idea. So we go in, and now Governor Bradford is rocking, has these phenomenal drag queens doing the karaoke. Fantastic. So Vanessa asks for her dream song, Bette Midler's Do You Want to Dance? Because she thinks of it, and her dad, and it's like, that's her song. So drag queen's like, yep, okay, here we go. And she's like, and this one goes out to the fantastic couple, Caitlin and Vanessa. <laughs> I've been outed. I don't, that wasn't supposed to, I don't, I, that's not right. So I'm like stunned, <laughs> deer in a headlight, and the song comes on. Do you want to dance and hold my hand? But Vanessa, do you want to dance, hold my hand? And she's still going, and the, the music is wrong, but she's still going on her song, and I'm a deer in the headlights, not doing anything. Outed, <laughs> but, but not outed. <laughs> so just for the record, still 
single and hetero. So there you go. <laughs> okay, so have a drink, and we're going to turn up the lights and turn on the music, and just think about it. Take a chance. Here we go. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it was kind of a cool dog. Um, I used to teach at a prep school, and I always had this, um, at a boarding school, and so I always had this sense that everybody at boarding school had dogs. And so I had to get a dog, and that was part of the deal. And one of the reasons I had to get a dog is that anybody who had a dog had kids found that person more popular, or you know, they would have sort of a bevy of kids following them around because of their dog. So I had a friend who said, well, why don't you try um, my dog? Why don't you try, you know, having my dog live with you for a while? So, I had my friend, my friend Lee. You remember Lee? If Lee is a character beyond belief. Lee would just sort of get whatever she wanted, and so she gets this great dog, this Bouvier, and I'm and the dog was trained. When you would say "quickie," it would pee, and so it was. I was rehearsing a play, and we were in the middle of rehearsal, and some kid said. Um, oh, Mr. Walzik, the dog has to go. And so I said, well, we'll all take him outside. So we all went outside in like this freezing cold. And the dog's just sort of standing there looking around. All of a sudden, we all, and we all screamed, quickie! And we, we screamed, the whole campus kind of, we kids popped out of windows like, what's going on here? There's a quickie going on outside. Um, and this dog peed like, had a grand old time peeing. So after that play ended, I... Um, the one girl came up to me, and she was this very wealthy Long Island girl, and she used to wear a mink to rehearsal, which I always thought was ridiculous, and a really good one. Not sort of like a hippy-dippy mink. And she said, she came up with her checkbook, and she said, we need to get you a cast gift, but what do you want, a dog? And I said, yeah, that would be really cool. And she said, how much? And I said... I don't know, 700. And so she wrote me this check for 700. She said, this is from the cast. And so I went and I, so I had this $700 check, so I went and looked. I thought this is the most impersonal gift I've ever gotten in my life. You know, an 18-year-old in a mink coat who had more money than I will ever see in my life. There's something wrong with this picture. Um, so I got this dog. And so I found this Bouvier. He was a blend of a Bouvier and a poodle. And his name was Winston. And Winston was a great big black dog, big black nose, big black, you know, button nose. And he used to wear all this kind of neckwear. He kind of reminded me of Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> when he'd sort of walk around, kind of rattle and do all these sounds. Um, and so he stayed with me at the prep school, and there were a couple of experiences that were really quite funny. One of them, once I was, again, it was in the winter, and it was snowing tremendously. And I was, I, was, I was one of those fortunate people in, in a boarding school who didn't have to live there. Because if you lived there, it was like you gave your life. And the headmaster used to say, this is a calling. And I used to think, this is not a calling. This is like crazy. Um, so I used to always drive home. And somebody smiling about boarding schools. They either went to them, worked at them, or lived next door to them. Um, so I um, had this, so I had this dog, Winston. And I said to this kid, this Lee Baker, who was always losing his glasses in the water, whenever he did crew, he'd sort of bend over and he'd lose his glasses. And so he didn't have much kind of wherewithal with his head. And so um, he's, I said, did you see Winston? And he said, oh, yeah, he's over there up on the snow hill. 
Um, and so I said, what's he doing up there? He says, oh, he's riding a cafeteria tray down the hill. <laughs> so I go over to this hill, and there is my dog, Winston, propped on top of a cafeteria tray with some kid sort of pushing him down. And he's sliding down you know, with this elegant sort of <laughs> look, this air of like, I'm so cool. And so I, you know, he gets to the bottom of the hill, and I said, Winston. And he sort of comes sauntering over like, you know, like he had just, you know, sort of like a diva, like he had had his moment. And so he hopped in the car and he went home and he's, and I'm, you know, I'm blabbing in the car and he's going, <gasps> he's just sort of, you know, shaking the snow off of his head like, you know, really anything you say doesn't really matter. So he keeps going back and forth with me. And then that spring, they, um, the school had built a new library and they had, you know, and everybody was all aglow. Um, because of this, and, and it was built with Robert Luce, it was called the Luce Library, so it was built with Luce money, which was old Time Magazine empire money. And Luce had gone to the school, but was very disenchanted with the school. So for a long period of time, he never had anything to do with the school, but he, somebody courted him to build this library. So this was a big deal. He was actually coming back, so there's Mr. Luce giving the big, you know, you know, you know, welcome to my library speech. And they had built, they had done a cake. And the cake was a, you know, facsimile, it was decorated like the library. And it was in that. So the assistant head of the school calls me and she said, uh, Michael, do you know where Winston is? And I said, no. She said, well, he just ate the cupola off the <laughs> library cake. <laughs> Would you please go get him? And so I went out, the, I was, my office was in this theater building because that's what I taught. And I went into the lobby of the building and well, Winston had come back with the cupola remnants all over his face and he had his head buried in a garbage can digging for other garbage. Again, I dragged him back in the car and we left and went to Boston. So one last funny sort of Winston story. Um, I was watching the Westminster show one night, and he was sitting there on the bed watching it, and I said, oh, isn't that a cute little beagle? I just love beagles. And he picked his head up, and he looked at me like, you what? And he hopped off of the bed. You know, and he could be very loud and big. My friend Marino, she was very big and sort of be just, and he plopped out of the room, making all, bumping into everything, and he went in the other part of the house. And that whole night, he did not sleep in the bedroom. The morning when I got up, he did not get up. I mean, I got the subtext was, you want a fucking beagle? You find a fucking beagle and see how far he gets you. Um, so Winston unfortunately died um, a couple years after that. And it was very, very sad. Um, he, had, um, he, he had a number of things wrong with him, but when I came home, person who was staying with him was going to take him to the hospital. But he saw me, thanks, and he got up. And I said, Winston, what's wrong? You look so, you know, you don't look good. And he looked like shit. Um, but he got up and he walked around the house one time alone. It took everything out of him to make that walk as if to say, I'm okay. I'm okay. And he went down the stairs, went to Angel Memorial, and that's where they put him to sleep. That's the story of Winston.
Hi, my name is Olivia. Hi. Um, so I wasn't planning on coming up here, but I guess I have a story about an animal. So um, somehow last summer, I started getting asked to cat sit very frequently. And honestly, I've never really been a cat person. I don't really like cats. I'm more of a dog person. But um, somebody asked me if I could feed their cat. And then they, they told a couple of their friends that I'd fed their cat. So anyway, this summer I was feeding like three different cats. But so um, one of these cats was for a woman, the, a couple that I didn't really know. But um, they asked me if I could feed their two cats. And I said, OK, sure. And so they were gone for, I think, a week. And so um, I went over to their house, and they gave me instructions on how to feed the cat. And um, they live in the same town as me. But so I went into their house, and it was one of those houses that is like the kind of house that you see on a show, like not quite like a hoarder's, but like they just have tons of stuff everywhere. But they clearly live very comfortably with it. And that like, you know, they're just piles of everything all over the table, under the table. and. You would, never, you would never need any of this stuff, but they just have it everywhere, and they live, they live with it there. Anyway, and so they said, okay, so we have two cats. Um, one of them is sick. I don't, I don't even remember with what, but you need to give him um, two pills every day. And so, and the other one, you know, no, no special circumstance or anything, but, um, and they said one of them, he's very friendly, and the, the other, he's not. And of course, the friendly one was, was the one that didn't need pills. But, um, so they said, okay, so I met the cat, the other, I don't even remember the other cat's name, but um, they said, yeah, so the Shire cat, the one who's not as friendly, needs pills. Um, sometimes we can't find him, but, um, so you, you don't have to meet him today, but next time you're here, I'm sure you'll meet him. And his name's Monster. And I was like, okay, Mo really Monster? But anyway, and so, um, the first day I came, I, you know, put water in the bowls and everything like that, but I couldn't find, couldn't find the cat. And so I was there, I think, for about 40 minutes looking for the cat, and then with no luck. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll come back the next day. I'm here for a week. And so the next day, again, no luck, and um, still couldn't find the cat. I'm, like, wandering around through their house looking under all these books, and, uh, like, you know, there's just stuff everywhere. And so um, finally on... I think it was like the third day. I, I made I made my I made my mom come with me, and um, we're looking for the cat. Spending you know I'm getting paid maybe I think ten dollars a day, but I'm spending an hour there searching through all their crap for this cat. And then um, finally I opened one of those closets, and it's one of those ones that goes under the stairs, and so it's super deep. And I see just a pair of eyes looking at me, and I was like, okay, there's the cat. And so I'm digging through like tons of like dusty clothes and jackets and finally found the cat but then it just it proceeds to run away and couldn't find it and then I think it, we didn't actually like get hold of the cat until the next day I I had my dad come with me and I this like I feel bad thinking about this moment because I like the only way we got the cat to have these pills and also like I don't know if you ever fed an animal pills but you think like it's relatively you know you I thought I was naive to think it would be easy, but I had a friend, she has cats and a dog, and she said, are you kidding me, you're going to try to feed a cat pills, you've never fed your own dog pills, like, there's no way, and I, I had cats at one of the other cat sitting jobs I had, the cat had arthritis, needed medicine, but it was, it was a 20-year-old cat, and you would just take this cream and rub it in its ear, and I was like, this is no big deal, I'll just give it, you know, one pill a day, it'll be fine, but anyway, and so the only way we got this cat to have the pill was, my dad had the cat, like, pinned down, like hand on its chest and then like on one thumb on its collar and I pried open its mouth and we're just like throwing the pill at its tongue and finally it took one of them and I think after the whole week 
we got, you know, it needed, I think it, well, it needed a pill every day, and I think we had it maybe once or twice. It got, like, <laughs> half a pill. And so, um, anyway, at the end of the week, I, the cats were both alive, and I guess that was fine, but um, I never did cat sit for them again, so that was that. <laughs> okay, there's my story. <laughs> Let's welcome Barbara to the stage. Barbara. Wow. There are a lot of lights. I know half these people anyway. Um, so this is kind of an animal slash last call story. Um, anybody who knows me knows that animals are, I'm all about animals. Most of my kids have grown up with most animals, big dogs, little dogs, lizards, fish, rabbits, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, this particular story is about a dog that we adopted. Um, I was about this much pregnant, and we already had a basset hound, and we had our car was being repaired by a gentleman who had a bull mastiff. I love big dogs, 130-pound dog, about a head this big. And uh, the uh, owner of the car repair place said, comes out to me, and he, I said, oh, what a beautiful dog. Can I pet him? And they're like, of course you can pet him. And they have a very heavy Czech accent. They're immigrants. The dog, he loves you. I tell you, the dog, I can feel it. The dog, he loves you. Oh, big time loser. So I'm like, so he's like, we're looking for a new home for the dog. We're going to Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's too hot for the dog. I look at my husband. He's like, whatever you want. Because at this point, he knows he really doesn't get any say in these kind of decisions in our family. So I said, well, you got to help me because clearly I got a lot going on here. So he says, sure. So we have this 130 pound dog and he, they we said, well, we'll call you in a week or two to deliver the dog to your home. Okay, fine. So I'm like, the phone rings. I'm like, hello. We're like, well, we're, we're, we're looking to deliver the dog in the doghouse. So mind you, the doghouse is a small apartment building. <laughs> it's literally four feet by eight feet. It's like two rooms. It's insulated. This dog lived outside. He never lived in their home. They were vegetarians and all that, so I'm like, yeah, no, bring it. So we just had construction done in our home in Arlington, which if you know Arlington, Massachusetts, your yard is about this big. You don't have a lot going on in your backyard. So they bring this, my backyard is full of construction debris, and they offload this, oh, they call me for two, we want to deliver the dog. I'm like, I'm in labor, actively in labor. Please call me back in two weeks. So they do that, and they are deliver this dog house, which is huge, small apartment building. And then my, uh, we have to put up chicken wire around to keep the dog in, which he was a big, gentle giant. And then, of course, my husband, who's as big of a mushball as I am about the animal, says, oh, he can't live outside. He's not living outside. <laughs> fine. So which is fine with me because I really, I had no, I, no illusions that the dog was ever going to live outside. I thought maybe in the summer he might spend a few hours but never live outside. So the dog lives in our house. He's now living with the meat eaters of the, you know, you know, we love our steaks. And this dog got food scraps. His senior, he was like eight years old when we adopted him. And they only lived to be maybe 11, 12 at a good day. 
So we have this dog, love this dog. He was a perfect gentleman. He actually taught my youngest to walk. He was his walking toy. He would hold his back. He was a complete gentle giant with a head this wide. And so the poor old guy at one point finally got to the end of his life and he was, we could hear his labored breathing and he had stopped eating a day or two before and um, great dog and um, my husband says we should do something I said no we shouldn't this is this is it this is it for him and he is 11 and he's had his senior years have been wonderful he's been loved by small children he's been inside a home he's had meat scraps and he's had a great time so you know this is all good for him so he lays down he's laying in our dining room he's panting heavily and I said, this is it. So I laid down next to him, I held him, and he passed. So he, his, his, he evacuates his urinary bladder all over our dining room, and I said, Kevin, this is his final salute to you. <laughs> and my family, we're a little bit macabre about the whole death thing. You know, we tend to laugh about it, we're Irish. You know, it's like, if you can't make fun of it, you know, we, we, uh, we kind of like say, does this casket make my butt look big? You know, we're those people. So, I said, so we have this big, big dog now passed away in my dining room. And we have to get this towel out. So we lay it out. And we're like, how are we getting this thing out of the house? Now, 130 pounds of dead weight is, that's a lot. So we like lay him on there. We have a big blanket. My husband and I are like going out the front door and I'm thinking, you know what the neighbors are saying? There's Barb, there's Kevin. Who's the body? <laughs> so we lay him in the back of my, my um, Volvo station wagon, you know, and I, uh, it's like a busy season for me at work. So I drive to work. I'm like, what am I gonna do, call an emergency? Like, there's nothing to resuscitate here. I'm not spending extra money for the vet to like do something. I literally go to work, dog body in the back, blanket over, and you see this paw laying out, and I'm like, okay, yeah, well, I'll deal with what I need to deal with at work, and then drive him to the vet and do what I need to do. And that is my last call. And <laughs> that <Impressive> story. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Kate Langstaff and Vanessa Vardabedian and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Boobalas by the Bay Restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash mosquito story slam or via Twitter at mosquito story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash mosquito story slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.